Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hi there and welcome to the next episode of Exponential Minds. My name is Nicholas Badminton. I am a futurist and I help my clients look out 5, 10, 20 plus years into the future to help them do more resilient strategic planning and anticipate risk that could affect their business today. And today I'm, I'm excited to chat to an old friend of mine um, from Vancouver days and London days and uh, an innovation expert and a designer and uh, an all-round uh, you know, human connection specialist, as it were, uh, Brett McFarlane. Brett is an innovator, educator, advisor and investor. He's worked with leading global brands to develop innovative new products, brands and communications resulting in over 200 awards and patents. He's a behavioral economist by training and uh, with deep experience leading digitization. He's recently completed research at INSEAD in Europe, the leading, the leading global business school, applied a system psychodynamic perspective to innovation leadership. This distinguished research illuminates the inner world of repeat innovation leaders to understand the feelings, thoughts, and behaviors that enable or inhibit progress. He's got a really fantastic monthly newsletter called Connecting Dots, and that's a thoughtful and practical exploration of the human side, which is probably the most important side of innovation. And you can subscribe to that at brettmcfarland.com, and we'll talk about that as we go through. Brett, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nick. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and uh, you know it's always great to chat to you, and I really wish that we could uh, be be having this conversation in person in London. But you know, towards the end of this pandemic, we're still stuck in our relative places. But as we do with this podcast, you know, what, what's your origin story? How have you sort of landed in this position, having done this research, and what was your journey along the way? That's a big question to start with, Nick, and it's. Uh... It's a, it's a good question. I also, it's a question I think a lot of us can't really answer until later in life when you can look back and stitch together the threads of what you've done, uh, sometimes with intent, sometimes just out of sheer drive and raw, you know, survival. Uh, and when I say survival, I don't necessarily mean just, you know, uh, achieving enough physical uh, food and shelter, but also meaning and identity and reward and connectors with others. And I look back and see that the thread throughout my life, and it actually goes back in generations of my family, is that there's a fascination with the human capability of innovation. And not just that fascination with the capability, but also the question of why is it so elusive? And you know, I, I'm a product of uh, economic immigrants on both sides of my family, and there's a heavy vein of engineering and building physical structures and, and uh, infrastructure, in fact, at a national level, and you know, business innovation and legal innovation and all kinds of um, work that's just pushing boundaries. But you know, for myself, I, I've always been drawn to that innately, and I think only sort of recently have I started to develop my own answers as to why. And this has sort of been my quest, which I've always lived on the edge of innovation. And whether that was as an athlete of trying to find the newest technology or a different way to do what I'm doing, or 
even when I started my studies, I studied economics. I'm, I'm Canadian, but went to university in the United States on a scholarship, studied economics and was really dis dissatisfied with the conventional economics um, education, which was very classical at the time. As behavioral economics was emerging where I'm like, ah, this looks more like reality, the messiness of humans versus the artificial cleanliness of how we act. And I think professionally that I've just sort of been drawn to that A, uh, pursuit of progress and also B, the, the, the almost phenomenon of human behavior where as much as we have good explanations for things, we don't have all the answers. And so today that's where I spend a lot of my time while I have had the good fortune to lead digital products, brands, service innovation for, you know, for leading firms. We all have products on our phones that I've been a part of, uh, for example. Uh, but I've really over the last decade shifted more and more into leadership capability because I see that the real um, challenges are, are, while there are technical challenges, the greater challenge is how do we manifest these new inventions and ideas and make them real. And that's why I'm very intrigued by innovation leadership as a relatively emerging field where we accept processes understood, but how do we perform like an athlete when it matters most? And so that's where most of my work is now, either continuing research in that vein or running a what I call a clinical private practice where I deal with unique situation, individual leaders or leaders within a firm and develop their ability, depending on their ambition, to increase the, the tolerance, if you will, of the innovation leadership position and dealing with complexity, ambiguity, uncertainty and help them thrive, uh, both in terms of creating more value, but also more personal meaning and also reducing uh, some of the, the, the downsides of leading innovation uh, from a health perspective, reputational perspective, uh, resilience, et cetera. And so that's a sort of a little, in what, two minutes, maybe three minutes, uh, yeah. a bit of my journey. Yeah, and I, so there's a few things in there I want to unpack and I really love. I mean, you talk about the mess of humans and, you know, we're, we're flesh and bone and psychology and uh, we're products of our environment, we're products of our, our familial history, if you want to go into uh, sort of ge genetic memories, if you were, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting how trauma can affect how we operate today um, and even even drive innovation because, you know, we're, we're hypervigilant, we operate in, in whole new ways. And then when we start to think about leadership leadership is takes the mess of humanity and tries to like groom it into some kind of way of working more productively right correct i mean leadership which is different from management or management is about stability and repetition leadership is about driving change right and drive is a very elusive word because there is no secret formula but there is a capability that we do find in people who can do it repeatedly and the evidence increasingly tells us it is more and more the softer factors like EQ, psychological safety, reflexivity, self-awareness that are correlated to success, success, unlike the lionization of certain iconic leaders that we perceive as what an innovator looks like. But there are millions of people in the world of business who are out there driving innovation, which is driving change and delivering it and making it real quietly. Yeah, quite quietly, but with, with intent and focus and, and driving the teams behind. Them. It's really interesting when we talk about driving change and, you know, is innovation something that you create or does it just, you, do you find it around the corner um, after you after you undertake a bunch of research or whatever? I mean, it, it's it's complex from like data and insights, experimentation, you're building things, failing, you know, coming back and rebuilding things. And then you have to persuade the world that it's a good idea for, for that innovation to catch fire. Uh, Mike Rowe from uh, Dirty Jobs, <laughs> they used to be, I think it was Fast Company, he had one minute MBAs. 
And Mike Rowe said, he says, you know, his, his, his one minute piece of advice was around innovation. He goes, you know, innovation without repetition is just masturbation. And I kind of, it stuck with me, right? You're, you're, literally, you're literally stuck in the back playing with yourself um, if you've got a good idea. And how many people have we spoken to? It's like, well, I came up with that idea 10 years ago. Well, I've got an idea because ideas are absolutely nothing with the execution. And the execution is really difficult. And innovation is the product of, you know, the narrative that comes out of the back end of it seven years later when suddenly it catches on fire, right? Exactly. And there is a, a, a truth that is contrary to what we like to pretend. And in business, we like to pretend it's controllable and we like to pretend it's predictable. Right. And the reason for that is because we don't really understand or the irrationality around it. We treat it as irrationality versus look at it quite rationally. And you look at, to, to pull another quote that I really like from Clayton Christensen, whose work I have great admiration for, yep. how he studied the field and what does it look like, much the way you would study a hockey team or a football team as what did they do that helped them in the past win, which of course has no bearing on the future, but it helps them understand what has happened. And you know his work goes all the way through analyzing objectively and technically what's going on, but stops at his quote where he says, unfortunately, some managers don't think as rigorously about whether their organizations have the capability to successfully right. execute jobs that may be given to them. And that keyword capability is the thing that we can unpack ever and ever better, as we have done over the last three decades in sports psychology, where we don't see elite performance as an extreme act. And that's where, you know, that you use that quote from the chap with dirty jobs, um, you know, <laughs> that kind of like, fantastical thinking and almost schizophrenic bouncing off the walls. That's a totally unhelpful, super high energy state. Right. And just like, you know, the athlete who's just bouncing out of their head and desperate to try and go too much. And then they underperform because they've burned all their energy. And on the flip side, you then have the cynic in the depressive state, which isn't good either. Whereas in the middle is the performance zone where you have that capability to face complexity, to look at reality, see the good and the bad, and to reconcile them and still step forward. Do you, do you think do you think people are born with this? Because if we look at athletes, like clearly there's a physiology, clearly there's a, there's a mental state, and the application of you know how you, how you uh, can work with your body. I mean, I'm six four. I grew like a f over a foot when I was fifteen, and suddenly I went from being a very capable skateboarder to being someone that's, that was incredibly dangerous on the skateboard, right? Uh, and it's just like physically, I, I couldn't. I couldn't work in that, that, that same physical realm, but my brain at the same time was sort of um, applying itself in whole new ways of how I saw the environment as a skateboarder per se, right? And that's, that's led to me thinking completely divergently about the world, being a futurist, so on and so forth. Um, but, but really, I mean, do you think that there are some people that are, that are born to be innovators or, or do you think that anyone can really, with enough motivation, step up and, and, and take that leadership on and drive change? So this is a, a really good question that can get misunderstood very easily. Right. And I think that because I believe in the developmental capability of the adult brain, which is fairly well documented now, by, in particular by a chap that I really respect a lot of his work, Robert Keegan. Yeah. Um, I do believe that if you don't necessarily have the initial desire or ambition, you can develop the ability to tolerate the complexity for it. But um, baked into that question, can anyone innovate, is a, a counter question of should everyone innovate? And not necessarily. Right. And this is why I, I take a clinical approach, because I think it is very individual. And some of us have a particular 
life experience, a particular composition that draws us to want to do it. And for us, it's a greater loss not to be able to do new than to be stable and consistent. For other people, their identity, uh, their background, the trauma of experience may mean that they so greatly value being the reliable, certain person that never surprises and is appreciated for it, that to go against the grain and trying to do something that's quite risky and ambiguous, it yeah. loses their own sense of identity. It is actually equivalent to a death experience. <laughs> and this is where I think we we really do ourselves a disservice. People are like, we want to be an innovation company. It's like, okay, as a company, cool. But that doesn't mean every single person has to do it. You're being right. very judgmental upon not just what they're capable of, but what they as a person want. So that's where those who are drawn to it repeatedly do have certain characteristics of what they don't like losing in life. And often it's identity, a sense of competence. But the we all have a drive. And, you know, often the drive is something that is universal, uh, whether we want to innovate or not. And I can get into that in a sec, but I know we'll yeah. come to the research in a minute. Yeah, it's kind of intoxicating to be in a room with someone that's driving like massive growth in a company or doing innovation. But that it, it kind of almost feels that if, if you're in that dependable, you know, stable and consistent role, it's like you're looking like a crazy person, someone that's possessed, right? It, I, I worked at a large digital consultancy and the CEO had this reputation of just, you know, just being a little bit, you know, lively or rewriting entire presentations in the cab half an hour before the, the pre and, and, it, and, and, and people didn't understand it, but I stood, stood back and they were like, oh, so-and-so is crazy and oh, oh my God, so-and-so's coming to the meeting and everyone around the room was looking at each other. And I just sat back and I said, why do you think we're here? And why do you think that we've got this huge office and we've got hundreds of people and we, we're in a company, we're going to hit $100 million in revenue. Why do you think we're there? And it's because you need that. It's not a chaotic mind. It's just someone that just sort of shirks off that, that, that comfort, stability and consistency to say, okay, there's, there's, a new, there's a new way in town. And I need to tell the world and the world might not get it, but you know the people that really want to buy into it, they need to shake the hand and, and sign the check and take the leap of faith, right? And as an organization, what you're, what you're spot on and banging the, the nail into is the difference between value creation and value extraction. And right. an organization's strength is its ability to tolerate change, but that change is always somewhere between the tension of those two, because you need somebody creating the value like that um, example, yeah. who is you know, willing to push boundaries, take personal risk, accepting people may dislike, even hate him or her. Right. But then there's other people who are then once that, um, you know, like an icebreaker that have gone through the, you know, the fjords of the Arctic can then come with the armada and extract the value out of it. Um, yeah. Uh, and hopefully that's not a that's not a, a natural resources mining example. That's more <laughs> let's say uh, let's yeah. just save something, you know, do some good work up there in the Arctic. But but, but it, in in these ecosystems as well, with these people that are about that value creation, you know, there's still there are still people that the heroes and the winners, and they're they're the people that have fallen to the wayside and kind of burnt all their energy in the ecosystem, just taking it as far as they could. You know, I, I'm, I'm trying not to use uh, military metaphors, you know, of infantry versus, you know, the generals or anything like that. But it's kind of interesting in innovation to, 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 to have a, a bigger view of knowing who does what and how they contribute and how to reward them as well, right? 
reward and to protect them, um, but done in a in a respectful way for for all people, because that's the, the the problem, the mistake when people lionize, like, hey, this is the innovator, great, and that's like great way to make them hated by everyone else. Right. Um, and also, you know, it 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 doesn't account for the fact that that individual may be driven by something, and there is very little active work on how you develop innovation leadership capabilities in organizations so teacher processes no problem but like you know i was watching um a, a thing this morning of the north sea where they've got the wind turbines and they figure within 10 years it'll power all the uk's energy they've gone right. from 40 to 4 percent of coal you know it's it's a big shift in the energy grid but the, before the journalist goes out there they throw him in a simulator of a helicopter if it falls into the water and how you get out so that's an example of like how you prepare people for a highly uncertain and quite traumatic experience. Innovation is none of that. Um, even in highly innovative companies, it really is, you're on your own. It's sink or swim. And sadly, a lot of talent gets lost as a result of that. Um, people burn out. Uh, they, they just say, okay, that's it. I can't take this anymore. Uh, sometimes quite catastrophically. And, you know, for the size of the problems that we have in the world and the opportunity with the technology, that's real tragedy. And, you know, this is real, like it can be very tangible, you know, 94% of executives are dissatisfied with innovation in their firms. That means right. only 6% of executives are satisfied with the innovation in their firms. Only 6% are achieving what that chap you gave the example of. Yet 84% of firms innovation is a top three priority. And the hard metrics in the West have been declining for decades of new products, new patents, productivity, all the traditional metrics. So there's something going on there. You know, and that's, a, a, it's a tragedy, unfortunately. Yeah, I was working with a client earlier this year and we're going through and, you know, maybe there's some transformation opportunities, maybe there's some opportunities to to think about new, new lines of revenue and whatever. And it's like, cool. And, you know, after about two weeks and I interviewed about 15 people, it was like, well, you need a, an innovation. There needs to be some sort of innovation capability, at least like yeah. steering the ship. And I chatted to someone, they were like, Oh, yeah, we had that last year and the executive got rid of it. And it was like, okay, so, and this is your point. People are dissatisfied, but they're creating this, what is it? Um, I, I think I've read the same research, a middle layer uh, management permafrost, you know? <laughs> and the, exactly. you just can't break through. And it's people that like suddenly they've got so much on their plate. And I think we've maybe seen this uh, as part of the pandemic. Pandemic came in, shut everything down, immediate stasis and immediate freezing and and you know, and and fear and anxiety, right? And I think this goes into the research that you did. And suddenly, you know, you can't do things. But at the same time, you know, curbside pickup, moving to e-commerce, suddenly doing delivery when you never did it before, working out new ways of connection and distance. All of these things can be, you know, um, all these things can be scaled and taken care of um, because now you've got permission to do it. And like the, you know, the bureaucrats are out of the way, right? Well, and the, the tone in the room changed. So the, right. last year is a great example of when innovation went from being important to vital. For a period right. of time, there is the, oh, crud, we, we might die. Right. Uh, let's pull forward the six months, six year roadmap, whatever it was, that was right. moving incredibly slowly. I mean, the number of board members are like, wow, we did it. <laughs> you know, right. We did in six months what we've been talking about for six years. Wow. But they they don't necessarily recognize because the, the 
temperature turned up and suddenly it really was life or death as one point but then secondly right. they also took it out of the cage so when a firm is such a it's such a tell you do the smell test it's like here's our innovation zone or here's the, the <laughs> person we've hired it's like yeah. cool so it's like bringing nature in a cage into your office and feeling like you know what the wilderness smells like right you know and you and what you're doing is you're actually separating it from everyone else because it is a team job it's a systems job it's a multi-party right. task is innovation it's not a heroic quest it's a multi-party task we need everyone from people who think strategically commercially and administratively um to not just develop the thing but rewire around that new proposition how the organization operates no matter how small if it's a tiny process change or if it is a fundamental disruptive shift to the business model of the market either way unless you treat it multi-party it's going to come up against uh, very serious tension and that's even true in the innovation leaders and that we know out there you know the the permafrost is a very powerful force it's like the goo that just comes in right. or some firms especially creatively driven firms they have the opposite they have permathaw where nothing lands it just continually is fluid and right. you know the, the commitment isn't there so where the permafrost people overcommit to what it was or what they think the firm is in permathaw they never personally want to commit because they're so independent minded and they like freedom so much to actually deliver something uh constricts them yeah it, it it's like innovation with a capital i versus a small i right the capital i is the oh look over there it's innovation and let's talk about it and tell the stories and it's innovation or the innovation team or the innovation person uh, whereas actually it's innovation with a small i which is kind of like a, a daily task for everyone right and this is you know we we know that we don't build innovation teams to take over all the innovation. We know that we build innovation teams to tap into the wisdom of every single individual. I worked with a large airline in the UK, and this was this was quite a long time ago, about 15, 16 years ago, and they were hemorrhaging money through uh, development test cycles in software and uh, their web properties and whatever. And I, I sat there, I was a fairly young consultant, I would got about 10 years of experience, and, and I sat down with the, the, the company director and I was just asking some questions, and I was like, okay, where are your developers sat? You know, not what were they doing, and what were the stats or whatever, and he goes, well, okay, we've got, um, we've got a building three miles down the road that's got 100 of them, and the, and the testers, um, well, they're in a different building two miles from there, and downstairs, we've got some of the design team and some of the uh, you know, u u user experience people. I was like, oh, okay, uh, and I said, why don't we just sit them all in the same place? And he looked looked at me uh, puzzled, and I was like, "So they did that, and suddenly they went from like five cycles of testing and development that was shambolic, to suddenly like two, and like like saved about six million dollars in a year, and 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 people didn't think about some of the most sensible elephants in the room." Of, of just human nature and how difficult it is to communicate, right? And it's uh, that's why I think the it's the small I innovation that's really important. Yeah, and that's a great example where they went from, um, uh, without knowing the details, that sounds like a situation where you helped a group of people move from a managing mindset, which is right. distributed and routine. You don't need that much communication, really, there's right. no efficiency, to a leadership mindset where things are incredibly complex Right. Um, ambiguous and also there's a lot of personal vulnerability at play in yeah. those situations and so that's where 
sometimes as simple as putting people together, it allows enough time for that to metabolize so you can build connectivity and trust. And it's a statement of genuine intent. Like you, many companies, they do without them realizing it's a conspiracy not to innovate. By keeping it distributed, it makes it easier to right. have something to blame than to have to confront the reality that, you know, if you're trying to do something new, you're going to have to look at why what you're currently doing is, isn't good enough um, or could be better. And, you know, you have to look at your children and say, well, maybe that child is a bit ugly or it, it's kind of not going to be the talented one. Therefore, let's get another one. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can do that with mine. I'm only going to have it here. <laughs> so, but like, you know, we, we're pretty lucky so far. Okay, I want to change tack a little bit here because you, you did some pretty interesting research whilst you were doing your work with INSEAD. And I'd like to just go into that. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that work and what, what your findings were? Yeah, so the, um, it, it, it maybe is helpful to understand the context of the the area of Seattle I was within, which of course is the venerable business school who you know, pioneered and teaches a lot of the leading strategy practices in the world, even though a lot of them don't necessarily work. Um, and that's not to say there's anything wrong with them. You need to go through that pedagogical experience to understand it so you can learn how to think, not necessarily do what other people do. Right. But they have a practice which was very much pioneered by a chap named Manfred Kettebries, who's a psychoanalyst as well as a, a business school professor, at Harvard, who he more or less created executive education as we know it, pioneered coaching as a, an executive practice, um, and brings a group of psychoanalysts to look at why these good intentions we have in business don't necessarily work. So that's where system psychodynamics comes in, where it looks at the um, unconscious and the, the, the hidden within organizations, teams, and leaders to make sense of what's really going on. And when uh, I was going through the work there, I really do dove into leadership because it, um, it's an area that one is quite mysterious, but secondly, I, I just continually kept back, coming back to this massive gap that while there's lots of great theories and observations, the actual role of emotions, um, thoughts, and behaviors is very poorly understood, yet right. strongly hypothesized to be uh, possibly the most influential thing to success of leaders and organizations. And I just always had this epiphany that this is exactly like sports psychology, where you have super talented people, but how do you help them be their best when it matters most? And it's incredibly individual. And I looked at the innovation situation because of the, the you know, the, the frustrations and the failures we're seeing in the market, despite all the good intentions. And my research was quite simply in sort of like a corporate archaeology approach. What are the uh, emotions, thoughts, and behaviors, or the feelings, thoughts, and behaviors of repeat innovation leaders. Repeat was important for two reasons. One, it rules out luck, just one off. Right. And then secondly, it will mean that they'll have multiple points of data of times things have worked and haven't worked. And we can remove process bias and just look at them as a leader and what was that experience like. And yeah, you know, there's sort of two key things that came out of it. One was this realization that, you know, the, the epic heroic version of an innovation leader is pretty far from the reality. Right. Um, and most repeat innovation leaders are very thoughtful, they're very considered. Uh, and really their core task, regardless of the, the methodology or the context they innovate in, if it's physical, if it's digital, if it's intellectual process, uh, marketing, whatever, um, their real skill as an organization is identifying what is the realistic boundary of possibility? How far can we push? How much change, ergo innovation, can the firm tolerate? 
So that is actually their primary task. When it says pushing the boundaries, they, without realizing, figure out how far can I push it and get out alive. Um, and so that created the territory where their work happens. And from it, uh, what emerged is what I call the innovation leadership map, which looks at six um, uh, scales of experience to unpack what is the experience of innovation leadership, and then what are the positions when it's uh, in the zone of performance, like you're progressing, or in a trouble zone where you're regressing. And if it's helpful, I can run through very quickly the six scales. Sure. Is that helpful? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, Let's do that. Yeah. So I'll give you a taste. I won't go in the full depth because this is audio. But for example, you know, one of the, the six is the outlook of the leader. You know, is it somebody who has a hopeful attitude, sort of a balanced energy state, or are they euphoric? and high, or are they cynical and low energy? Or identity, are they, these people are idealized with irrational expectations, or are they despised even? Or are they somewhere in the middle where they're tolerated and trusted enough to be in the room for people to work with them? Autonomy is a third one where it's, you know, empowerment of course is what we want, but often when people find that they're overpowered or disempowered, that's another experience that gets in trouble zone. And it's closely paired to exposure into the organization. Are they underexposed, like distant in a cage? Or are they overexposed with a lot of heat and excessive pressure? Or are they able to be composed where they feel the tension, the heat, the anxiety, but they're able to work with it? And then the last two are risk. You know, what's their relationship to risk? Or do they feel impotent or omnipotent? Or are they ambivalent? They see the, the ups and downs and can reconcile them. And the last is actualization, which is a much more of a personal drive of do they feel that the effort that they're doing is futile and hopeless? Or is it delusional and crazy? Or are they quite humble? Humility was a very big commonality in people's when they were successful versus when they weren't. Right. You know, some people waving the flags and some people at the back just quietly knowing that they've kind of been right, but they're tired. So, so very tired. <laughs> exactly. right? but, but, but they're still willing to show up, you know, yeah. it's sort of the, and that's, and they don't withdraw because it's easy because some of those depressive states are, you may never tell anyone, but you just slowly withdraw. And that is the most um, dangerous act in business is not the uh, outburst, it's the withdrawal of support, of energy, engagement. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people we see, you know, the stories of burnout and about, you know, yeah. there's a lot, there's a lot of people through uh, social media today that talk about their, you know, we built this X, X million dollar startup that got bought by this X billion dollar mega, you know, innovation company. And here's the story. And, you know, pretty much without fail, like, you know, it, it's, you know, someone, someone has literally fallen to the wayside or had a really hard time or it, you know, there's been failures, things have gone horribly wrong, right? And uh, it, it's interesting um, for, for me to see that. I mean, you talk here about sort of that subconscious, the system psychodynamics. So, I mean, it, this is about psychological fitness as well as, you know, the ability to have good ideas and act on them as well, right? Good ideas and act on them, but also know thyself, which is right. the which is something we do not train in any business school, any uh, undergraduate school, in high school or elementary school. Right. And you know the way that these scales emerged was not like so. What do you think it is? It was using psychoanalytical interview techniques. So yeah. I'll have people identify what's known as the motivating anxiety. So we are compelled by anxiety. Is that there's something that we fear, some sort of persecution that compels us forward. There's three primary ones that I use, which was validation anxiety. We want to know we're good. Um, uh, control anxiety. We want to know we're safe. 
and uh, death anxiety, we want to know we made a difference, that we have a legacy. I'm very driven by validation anxiety, but I only learned this in the last few years. <laughs> and that's where suddenly I went back. I'm like, oh, that's why the second I achieved the, you know, the, the product delivery, the prize, the patent, within seconds, I was disappointed because I needed another hit of heroin of validation. Right. And those, and that's sort of the, an example of not knowing thyself. And that's when you keep running hard. And so either it's the anxiety, the motivating anxieties that can be the trouble spot, or it's the, um, uh, the, 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 the potential losses, the, um, oh, I'm forgetting what I call them. Um, this, you can edit out this bit, but I'm trying sure. to remember what they are. <laughs> it's okay. Detractors. That's right. Yeah. Um, or it's the detractors. So these are subconscious fears of what we, if what might be at risk, and if we lose. And so that's things like identity, compensation, um, right. uh, position, uh, and whatnot. And so those are often we know this from behavioral economics. The potential loss has a greater influence on our behavior and our decisions than the potential gain. And that's where the weird stuff can happen when that gets out of whack. Yeah, and and this I've done tons of uh, like personal. Uh, work o o over the years on this stuff I, it, it's almost like when you look at death validation control anxiety and you say you know I'm all about validation anxiety if I look at myself I think I'm all about death anxiety mm. it's, it's like if I don't if I you know it's like the shark the shark needs to keep swimming <laughs> you know because if the shark stops and suddenly and what is it Tom Sachs the artist you know he famously says what is it hard work is rewarded with more work you know that kind of you know the relentless <laughs> exactly. you know and and i have to stop myself and I've, I've actually done you know things like shamanic journeying and i like inner child healing and trauma sort of plays a, a big role in all this and uh, i think uh, gabor mate's films just come out and that's super interesting about sort of trauma and its role in the world as well but it, it's it's kind of interesting that this subconscious human level we we got to heal ourselves in, in a way so that we can actually you know do better in in our lives in our careers right well and to be aware of what's what's going on within us because we we all bring this into the workplace and why i find innovation so fascinating because it's like the formula 1 of business because you are at the absolute boundary of possibility right. And the intensity of it, uh, the extremes are greater than any other aspect of business with the exception of certain major, major crisis situations. But then that's a different thing. And that's also contained. You know, those are externally created. Yeah. Whereas innovation, you're, you're, you can be, you're mostly internally driven to be there. And thus when those underlying forces within you and in your inner theater that you're, they, you know, they, they guide you, you don't necessarily see what they are. That's when when you go back to those experience scales I have, when they when you move into those high and low positions, that's when the regressive um, cognitive patterns emerge. And often most people, most of us aren't aware of where that's coming from until it gets pointed out or you go through the work to develop the insight, you know, because yeah. we're, we're constantly using coping mechanisms just to function as human beings. You know, we all know we could walk out the door and get hit by a car, but we suppress that reality because we know it's not a high probability so that we can go to the grocery store. Um, whereas when you get consumed by one of those extreme positions, if you feel super exposed or yeah. you feel really despised, and that's when the regressive um, patterns emerge, where you may block that, you deny, you ignore, you split, you blame, you, know, you have those very, what are known as primitive um, defense mechanisms. And that's when weird stuff happens in that in a business context, that's when you see grand product launches, a get it done mindset unrealistically fast change expectations like let's have an innovation team for a year 
So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's delusional, that's regressive, that's primitive. And that's not about the logic on the PowerPoint slides. That's, that's the unconscious yeah. patterns and behaviors in the individuals and often a collective collusion um, to believe that out of a protection of something deeper. Yeah, and it, like sometimes innovation can be that you know the the, the de deflector in a way. You know, it's uh, again, I had a client, I did some futures work with them, some some visioning, wrote some science fiction stories for them, really cool stuff. And about after three years, I was chatting to someone. I always stay in touch with my clients. I was chatting to them, and she's like, "Oh, I'm I'm in the innovation team." And we've just got a newly formed innovation team. I'm like, that's amazing. Can you tell me a bit about it? Like, I was like, so, so, you know, can you tell me the experience of the leaders of innovation? And it, it would, you know, it was a, it was a name that was like literally put in a group, and there was like, who could, who could kind of think, probably think about innovation, and they put everyone in this group, and the, what they had were people that could build, build some hardware and software products, and some marketing people, and some PR people. And they, you know, after a year, very much like you said, you know, after a year, they achieved nothing because, you know, and they wanted to hire me to come in and start looking at innovation. It's like, I need to have three hours in the airport walking around. And I said, innovation can be as simple as putting seats next to plugs as, as it is to have something bright, shiny and new in the corner that you can have a press release about as well. And, and that sort of irked them a little bit, right? And it's like, where's the design rigor? Where's, where's, your, <laughs> where's your practice? So yeah, all I'm saying is like, it's that big eye innovation. Let's call it that. Let's suddenly have it. And innovation doesn't beget, calling something innovation doesn't actually create innovation in a way, right? No, and it can be a great form of non-work or anti-work. Right. It's a it's a way to put hope and disappointment into a nice container and get it all out. Yeah. But then contain it somewhere for a while and let it metabolize. And look, and that's not to say that those things can't have value, but there's um I think a different lens that we need to use to look at them more honestly. Because right. you can have like there's nothing wrong with setting up an innovation lab for a year or, or I did one for three years in Scandinavia to elevate capability. Um, sure, it did some cool stuff in Exemplar, but really it was to give the firm confidence yeah. and to teach people what external customer centricity looked like. Um, it didn't itself develop any products, but it was a champion of the capability to build it. So in that yeah. case, we're very honest about that. We weren't like, hey, here comes the next moon rocket. It's like, you know, this is a capability to help other people develop it. Um, but you know, like my favorite is like the uh, the venture group. Let's put a hundred million over this venture group, and that's going to be our innovation catalyst. It's like, right. well, why why do you need to put it over there? And why are you dealing with, uh, with a financial solution to what's a human uh, challenge, which is creating the space for risk taking, collaboration, development, you know, learning, and all all the good stuff. I would say that ninety percent of all innovation can be like really dull, right? Uh, again, I, I worked at. I worked in a company, and uh, and it was a consultancy, and uh, and someone told me the story. This wasn't me that did this. They went in, uh, and uh, this this telecommunications provider said, "Look, you know, there's going to be some way of thinking about innovation and design, and what if we can do this?" Is probably about twenty years ago, and it's like, okay, what can we do? Like, we want to make money, save money, go for it. And after about two months, uh, there was a report that came out. And it, there was just one line that added it added fifteen million pounds to their to their pockets, and it was like, stop paying fifty pounds um, to lock every phone to your network. <laughs> 
And they were like, what? And it's like, and, and if you lived in the UK all those years ago, you knew that, you know, when you were Vodafone, it was locked to Vodafone. When you were O2, exactly. you were locked to O2. And that caused, you know, this this burgeoning industry of, you know, the, the local cobbler that could unlock your phone and, and things like that, right? And yeah, 15 million pounds a year to lock the phones where you know that the people are going to go somewhere else if the service is not good anyway, right? And it's like, and they can pay 50 pounds themselves to unlock it anyway. So it was this like weirdness but boring innovation that's highly valuable is really valid. And I think a lot of leaders don't realize yeah. that. Well, exactly. One of the other tasks that innovation is a form of non-work is to address corporate boredom. Um, right. And th that is not an effective use of it. You know, like if you want to see the dullest innovation in the world, just research Amazon. And, right. you know, it, 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 but it's value creating um, and it's not necessarily very pretty. But it does what it's meant to do, and a lot of you know real innovation is not the stuff you read in Fast Company or, or see in nifty Instagram um, feeds. It is real work that's super value creating um, and very very hard. You know that's why there's the real thoughtfulness to real innovation leaders. It's not in a two day sprint. I mean, right. one of the, the least helpful books ever written for innovation is that Google Sprint book as though you can do it in a week. And people misunderstand that actually yeah. what all those sprints are, are taking tiny little slices of a, of a product and improving it. It's really, it's, you know, it's a nice um, incremental innovation story, but it's not the way it happens. And there's very great, and the beauty of innovation, because it is a phenomenon. At the end of the day, we don't really know where it comes from. It's just a raw right. human capability. Uh, that, by the way, is only agreed in 2018 by the OECD what it even is. So, you know, one of the great fun things you've probably done before is go to any company, say, what is your definition of innovation? And just watch the argument ensue. Um, but, you know, that's where the, I can't really remember my point on this, but yeah. it's like, it's, um, it's, it's just, that's everything we're talking about is all the human stuff we project onto yeah. it. Yeah. And it's a, these it's, deeper it's, innate needs that we have as individuals. Yeah, it's the fetishization, right? That that creation yeah. of something bright and shiny and like yeah, yeah, you know, um, in futures thinking and in innovation, I mean, I don't know what you think about the word moonshot. Uh, but I wrote a report like four years ago and it, my, my yearly report and page one, it was just a picture of, you know, I think it was Apollo 11. And and over the top were words and I just wrote them. I said, moonshots are bullshit. And and, <laughs> and, and and all I'd been hearing was the singularity university, blah, blah, blah. We all need a moonshot. But it's like that it moonshots are, are, are difficult to achieve because everyone doesn't have a billion dollars. They, they don't have the ability to scale like big big tech companies like Amazon or Google or Facebook or whatever. They, they're distracting. The big idea is so big and amorphous that is never achievable. In, in, mod, in the modern day, like zero, zero carbon is like the new sort of moonshot that's distracting every way from the yearly task of reducing your carbon footprint, right? Because it's like, nope, 2050. We're aiming for 2050. And because you're aiming so far into the distance, we're not coming back to today and being honest with ourselves about, are we making any progress at all, right? And I look at that situation with, with, with actually, if I step back, it's fun to, you know, to bash the, you know, the, 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 um, the moonshots to bullshit. But what those do signal, though, is yeah. some kind of a deeper wish in people. Sure. And a deeper wish to have something to be better. And what we can help them with those to have the courage to not just 
see what they think might be better, but where's the source of that? And to really look like, is there some underlying guilt or shame that is causing them to have that wish? Right. And that's not to beat them up over that, but by surfacing it, then you can better understand the drive and right. you can either warm up a cynical room or cool down a delusional room and to get into the space where you can do the real work to tackle it. And to answer the question of what's too little or too much innovation for us right now, right. relative to the problem that we we face, and is within the boundary of who we are, what our expertise is, um, the the authority we have, whether if we're a public or private firm, uh, the role we have in society to our stakeholders, and the tasks that we think that we can realistically do to push our boundary out and a bit more forward. Yeah. So, I mean, your research and, and previous conversations we've had, I mean, you talk about tolerance as well, right, yeah. uh, as being being important. Can you unpack that a little bit for me, Brett? Yeah, well, the tolerance is a different way to look at the question of how much innovation can we do, because it accepts that as much as we all like change, there's only so much we can take until we start to shut it down and reject it. Um, right. And so that's where, rather than the open-ended, our job is to push the boundaries. Uh, the, the better question is, is how much innovation can we tolerate right. within who we are, um, the industry we're in, uh, just literally as human beings right now, like is the world too chaotic and unstable right now? So for example, during the last year, the, the change tolerance was high because it felt vital. We needed it. We could take it. Let's move. Let's run fast. We're not going to ask too many questions because if, if not, then we're not here tomorrow. Um, whereas now you can see the opposite is pulled. Tolerance is actually re reduced even lower than before, um, anecdotally, because we're exhausted. We're tired. It's yeah. too complex. The, the fallacy of control that we had before has revealed itself. Actually, the world is just raw and unpredictable. And we right now can't necessarily deal with it. So we need some form of stability and structure. And so that's not to say there's no possibility for, for innovation, but you can pull back a bit and to figure out where are we now, where do we want to be, and look at it from three altitudes. The tolerance is a multi-party equation of the board and the authorizing level, the executive, who create the climate for innovation. Yeah. Then there's the, what he calls sort of the, the, the trees, the what grows on the ground, they're the leaders that actually grow the value. And then you have what's in the earth, which is the nutrients and the talents that really bring life to what those ideas are. And all three of those levels are multi-party and together, often unconsciously, um, work to define how much innovation is possible. And that's where to expand that boundary of tolerance, we can create spaces to create a shared level of understanding of what is not so much the ambition, because ambition is a really easy way to get out of actually doing the hard work, but to create the, the, the definition of what we do and can believe that we can do and that we can tolerate. You know? Yeah, and I, I think that to, you know, tolerance is incredibly uh, valuable as a lesson because I don't think that people think about these things as well or fitness or the ability or even the interrelationship between different levels I mean what, what what's coming next for you Brett I mean what are you doing with your research and, and and the next step for that and and what's happening with your practice yeah so the individual practice is what's getting a lot of interest there's a lot of individual leaders out there who feel that they've never had uh, proper leadership training for how to understand themselves in situations of innovation leadership. They understand administration and 
how to be charismatic and have a good vision, all that stuff, but how it affects them internally yeah. is an area that there's a lot of individuals who are um, really calling out for for assistance and help. And it's these are these are competent, high performing, functioning adults, but they need a flashlight. They need a co-pilot to help understand what's going on. And so that's a big part of my practice, uh, as well as some some organizational work. Um, but the the other part of my research, which I'm moving forward, and this is partly for a book that I, I will be writing next year on innovation leadership, um, is looking at elite athletes who have crossovered into being uh, business professionals and to see what from their sports psychology uh, practice that they acquired in, in sport they bring with them and how does that help them um, develop new things for the first time in business. You know, because a huge part of being an elite athlete is actually how you deal with things that are out of your control you know i'm i had experienced myself as a as an athlete with a sports psychologist as a alpine ski racer and so the weather you can't control the weather but it's really frustrating right therefore how do you cope as a professional on a day where it's really crummy weather it maybe affects what's your best performance or not but still get into the start gate and push out and have the best shot at uh succeeding and winning and performing to your potential so that's you know a new area of research which is expanding on the work that i had already done and right. a lot of that is at the end of the day what wrapped up all my research is a picture of frustration as a common and in fact universal experience of innovation but there's two different positions of frustration there's an optimistic frustration where you see the world could be better and you do the work to make it better and there's delusional frustration where you become cynical you reject it uh, or you become totally unrealistic and so try to see how uh, elite athletes handle that so that can that provide not just some evidence back into the business world but also sort of a deeper level of evidence which we're currently lacking what was really interesting about this conversation we're having, we're sort of coming to the end of the interview is, um, these are things that we don't talk about in terms of innovation. It seems like, you know, when you talk about innovation, you're talking about the shiny thing or the application or the system or or the billions of dollars that have been achieved through this. I just did a, an interview on the radio about Pokemon Go and how it's made $1.23 billion last year. But people are dying because they're driving around in cars trying to catch all the Pokemon. It's like, at the same time, there's, there's lots of different sides to this and i think the idea of of really going deeply into the psychodynamics um but understanding you know the, the different kinds of anxiety that do exist you know me and my death anxiety and you and your validation anxiety mm -hmm. or whatever and and that tolerance is hugely important because that's but it's all wrapped up in in, in sort of in in a cultural experience of you know doing innovation or being innovative in a way right well, it's, it's a great irony. So we talk about, you know, human-centered design, but we don't use human-centered approaches to innovation. And a big right. part of that, I would argue, is that it's a taboo to talk about that because either it's because it's, a, if, we're, if we're honest with ourselves, it's unpredictable. We don't really know where it's going to come the next time. So we'll create this sense of certainty. Um, but also the truth is, as an innovation leader, you have an enormous uh, sense, an aspect of responsibility, you know. Right. Creative destruction does have some harm, even the best ideas. And so that's leadership where, you know, you may have to launch a new product that unfortunately will make another division uh, group of people redundant. And that's an enormous burden that you have to right. carry. But the in successful innovation leader looks at the genuine, genuine net 
positive. And this is where there's a, an aspect of courage. And I think we need to talk about courage a lot more. Courage is yeah. composed of a morally worthy goal, visible risks, and intentional action. Great leadership is courageous because it understands the risks. It's, it's empathetic. It's compassionate. But it also understands there's, you know, there's a greater goal. And you can do these tough decisions that do have downsides for a net positive in a very compassionate, humane way. But that's a hard conversation that, you know, we need to be, um, you know, pull our socks up and be willing to have. And that's where true resilience comes from when we yeah. can accept the ambivalence of life. And innovation is an ambivalent thing. It's good and bad, you know, and and be um, look at it straight in the eyes. And it's better for everyone. That way we we remove the externalities that happen, but benefit from its fruits greater and allow more of this potential that currently is stuck in hard drives and drawers and get it out into people's hands and make their lives better. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, the futures work that I do, it, it, it almost, innovation is, is sort of the primer for it in a way and innovation work and design and whatever. And I speak about innovation, innovative products, projects, but also the boundaries and I'll certainly wrap some of this ideas around anxiety and tolerance into what I talk about as well, because I talk about human centered design a lot. But um, I mean, Brett, where, where can people find out a little bit more about you, read your research, uh, sign up for your newsletter? Yeah, the best place is at my uh, URL, which is simply brettmcfarlane.com, all one word, B-R-E-T-T-M-A-C-F-A-R-L-E-N-E. And in there, I have my newsletter called Connecting Dots, where I try to piece together the unknowns of innovation with uh, the practicalities that we're familiar with and just explore the topic more. Yeah, that's great. Well, Brett, I'd like to thank you for your time today. And uh, I hope all is well in London. And I hope to see you in, uh, in Canada pretty soon. And uh, it's always a pleasure chatting to you. So uh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Nick. I've enjoyed our conversation. And I very much look forward to the next time we can enjoy a pint in real life. Yeah, real life, real life, post pandemic. I'm declaring the pandemic over in Toronto within my, my, my family anyway. And we seem to be okay with that. Um, cue controversial comments uh, to that particular statement. Anyway, Brett, thank you so much. My pleasure, Chisnick.